Chapter Thirty One of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Thirty One Our Foreign Correspondent. London. Dearest people, here I really sit at a front window of the Bath Hotel Piccadilly. It's not a fashionable place, but Uncle stopped here years ago and won't go anywhere else. However, we don't mean to stay long, so it's no great matter. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how I enjoy it all. I never can, so I'll only give you bits out of my notebook, for I've done nothing but sketch and scribble since I started. I sent a line from Halifax when I felt pretty miserable, but after that I got on delightfully, seldom ill, on deck all day, with plenty of pleasant people to amuse me. Everyone was very kind to me, especially the officers. Don't laugh, Joe. Gentlemen really are very necessary aboard ship, to hold on to or to wait upon one, and as they have nothing to do it's a mercy to make them useful, otherwise they would smoke themselves to death, I'm afraid. Aunt and Flo were poorly all the way, and liked to be let alone, so when I had done what I could for them I went and enjoyed myself. Such walks on deck, such sunsets, such splendid air and waves. It was almost as exciting as riding a fast horse, when we went rushing on so grandly. I wish Beth could have come. It would have done her so much good. As for Joe, she would have gone up and sat on the main-top jib, or whatever the high thing is called, made friends with the engineers, and tooted on the captain's speaking-trumpet. She'd have been in such a state of rapture. It was all heavenly, but I was glad to see the Irish coast, and found it very lovely, so green and sunny, with brown cabins here and there, ruins on some of the hills, and gentlemen's country seats in the valleys, with deer feeding in the parks. It was early in the morning, but I didn't regret getting up to see it, for the bay was full of little boats, the shore so picturesque, and a rosy sky overhead. I shall never forget it. At Queenstown one of my new acquaintances left us, Mr. Lennox, and when I said something about the lakes of Killarney he sighed and sung with a look at me, "'Oh, have you e'er heard of Kate Kearney? She lives on the banks of Killarney. From the glance of her eye shun danger and fly, for fatal's the glance of Kate Kearney.' Wasn't that nonsensical? We only stopped at Liverpool a few hours. It's a dirty, noisy place, and I was glad to leave it. Uncle rushed out and bought a pair of dogskin gloves, some ugly thick shoes, and an umbrella, and got shaved a la mutton-chop the first thing. Then he flattered himself that he looked like a true Briton, but the first time he had the mud cleaned off his shoes the little boot-black knew that an American stood in them, and said with a grin, "'There you are, sir. I've given him the latest Yankee shine.' It amused Uncle immensely. Oh, I must tell you what that absurd Lennox did. He got his friend Ward, who came on with us, to order a bouquet for me and the first thing I saw in my room was the lovely one with Robert Lennox's compliments on the card. Wasn't that fun, girls? I like travelling. I shall never get to London if I don't hurry. The trip was like riding through a long picture gallery full of lovely landscapes. The farmhouses were my delight, with thatched roofs, ivy up to the eaves, latticed windows, and stout women with rosy children at the doors. The very cattle looked more tranquil than ours, as they stood knee-deep in clover, and the hens had a contented cluck, as if they never got nervous like Yankee biddies. Such perfect colour I never saw. The grass so green, sky so blue, grain so yellow, woods so dark. I was in a rapture all the way. So was Flo, and we kept bouncing from one side to the other, trying to see everything while we were whisking along at the rate of sixty miles an hour. Aunt was tired, and went to sleep, but Uncle read his guide-book, and wouldn't be astonished at anything. 
This is the way we went on, Amy flying up. Oh, that must be Kenilworth, that grey place among the trees. Flo darting to my window. How sweet! We must go there sometime, won't we, Papa? Uncle, calmly admiring his boots. No, my dear, not unless you want beer. That's a brewery. A pause, then Flo cried out, "'Bless me, there's a gallows and a man going up. Where, where?' shrieks Amy, staring out at two tall posts with a crossbeam and some dangling chains. "'A colliery,' remarks Uncle, with a twinkle of the eye. "'Here's a lovely flock of lambs all lying down,' says Amy. "'See, Papa, aren't they pretty?' added Flo sentimentally. "'Geese, young ladies,' returns Uncle, in a tone that keeps us quiet till Flo settles down to enjoy the flirtations of Captain Cavendish, and I have the scenery all to myself. Of course it rained when we got to London, and there was nothing to be seen but fog and umbrellas. We rested, unpacked, and shopped a little between the showers. Aunt Mary got me some new things, for I came off in such a hurry I wasn't half ready. A white hat and blue feather, a muslin dress to match, and the loveliest mantle you ever saw. Shopping in Regent Street is perfectly splendid. Things seem so cheap. Nice ribbons only sixpence a yard. I laid in a stock, but shall get my gloves in Paris. Doesn't that sound sort of elegant and rich? Flo and I, for the fun of it, ordered a handsome cap, while Aunt and Uncle were out, and went for a drive, though we learned afterward that it wasn't the thing for young ladies to ride in them alone. It was so droll, for when we were shut in by the wooden apron the man drove so fast that Flo was frightened and told me to stop him. But he was up outside behind somewhere and I couldn't get at him. He didn't hear me call nor see me flap my parasol in front, and there we were, quite helpless, rattling away and whirling around corners at a breakneck pace. At last, in my despair, I saw a little door in the roof, and on poking it open a red eye appeared, and a beery voice said, "'Now then, Mum!' I gave my order as soberly as I could, and slamming down the door with an "'Aye, aye, mum,' the man made his horse walk, as if going to a funeral. I poked again and said, "'A little faster.' Then off he went, helter-skelter as before, and we resigned ourselves to our fate. Today was fair, and we went to Hyde Park close by, for we are more aristocratic than we look. The Duke of Devonshire lives near. I often see his footman lounging at the back gate, and the Duke of Wellington's house is not far off. Such sights as I saw, my dear! It was as good as punch, for there were fat dowagers rolling about in their red and yellow coaches, with gorgeous Jameses and silk stockings and velvet coats up behind, and powdered coachmen in front. Smart maids, with the rosiest children I ever saw, handsome girls looking half asleep, dandies in queer English hats and lavender kids lounging about, and tall soldiers in short red jackets and muffin caps stuck on one side, looking so funny I longed to sketch them. Rotten Row means Route de Roi, or the King's Way, but now it's more like a riding-school than anything else. The horses are splendid, and the men, especially the grooms, ride well, but the women are stiff and bounce, which isn't according to our rules. I longed to show them a tearing American gallop, for they trotted solemnly up and down in their scant habits and high hats, looking like the women in a toy Noah's Ark. Everyone rides—old men, stout ladies, little children—and the young folks do a deal of flirting here. I saw a pair exchange rosebuds, for it's the thing to wear one in the buttonhole, and I thought it rather a nice little idea. In the P.M. to Westminster Abbey, but don't expect me to describe it, that's impossible, so I'll only say it was sublime. This evening we are going to see Fetcher, which will be an appropriate end to the happiest day of my life. It's very late, but I can't let my letter go in the morning without telling you what happened last evening. 
Who do you think came in as we were at tea? Laurie's English friends, Fred and Frank Vaughan. I was so surprised, for I shouldn't have known them but for the cards. Both are tall fellows with whiskers, Fred handsome in the English style, and Frank much better, for he only limps slightly and uses no crutches. They had heard from Laurie where we were to be, and came to ask us to their house, but Uncle won't go, so we shall return the call and see them as we can. They went to the theatre with us, and we did have such a good time, for Frank devoted himself to Flo, and Fred and I talked over past, present, and future fun as if we had known each other all our days. Tell Beth Frank asked for her, and was sorry to hear of her ill health. Fred laughed when I spoke of Joe, and sent his respectful compliments to the big hat. Neither of them had forgotten Camp Lawrence, or the fun we had there. What ages ago it seems, doesn't it? Aunt is tapping on the wall for the third time, so I must stop. I really feel like a dissipated London fine lady, riding here so late, with my room full of pretty things and my head a jumble of parks, theatres, new gowns, and gallant creatures who say, ah, and twirl their blonde moustaches with the true English lordliness. I long to see you all, and in spite of my nonsense am, as ever, your loving Amy. Paris. Dear girls, in my last I told you about our London visit, how kind the Vaughns were, and what pleasant parties they made for us. I enjoyed the trips to Hampton Court and the Kensington Museum more than anything else, for at Hampton I saw Raphael's cartoons, and at the museum rooms full of pictures by Turner, Lawrence, Reynolds, Hogarth, and the other great creatures. The day in Richmond Park was charming, for we had a regular English picnic, and I had more splendid oaks and groups of deer than I could copy also heard a nightingale and saw larks go up. We did London to our heart's content, thanks to Fred and Frank, and were sorry to go away, for though English people are slow to take you in, when they once make up their minds to do it, they cannot be outdone in hospitality, I think. The Vaughns hope to meet us in Rome next winter, and I shall be dreadfully disappointed if they don't, for Grace and I are great friends, and the boys very nice fellows, especially Fred. Well, we were hardly settled here when he turned up again, saying he had come for a holiday and was going to Switzerland. Aunt looked sober at first, but he was so cool about it she couldn't say a word. And now we get on nicely, and are very glad he came, for he speaks French like a native, and I don't know what we should do without him. Uncle doesn't know ten words, and insists on talking English very loud, as if it would make people understand him. Aunt's pronunciation is old-fashioned, and Flo and I, though we flattered ourselves that we knew a good deal, find we don't, and we are very grateful to have Fred to do the parley-vooing, as Uncle calls it. Such delightful times as we are having, sight-seeing from morning till night, stopping for nice lunches in gay cafés, and meeting with all sorts of droll adventures. Rainy days I spend in the Louvre, reveling in pictures. Jo would turn up her naughty nose at some of the finest, because she has no soul for art. But I have, and I'm cultivating eye and taste as fast as I can. She would like the relics of great people better, for I've seen her Napoleon's cocked hat and grey coat, his baby's cradle, and his old toothbrush, also Marie Antoinette's little shoe, the ring of Saint-Denis, Charlemagne's sword, and many other interesting things. I'll talk for hours about them when I come, but I haven't time to write. The Palais Royal is a heavenly place, so full of bijouterie and lovely things that I'm nearly distracted because I can't buy them. Fred wanted to get me some, but of course I didn't allow it. Then the Bois and Champs-Élysées are très magnifiques. 
I've seen the imperial family several times, the emperor an ugly, hard-looking man, the empress pale and pretty, but dressed in bad taste, I thought. Purple dress, green hat, and yellow gloves. Little Knapp is a handsome boy, who sits chatting to his tutor and kisses his hand to the people as he passes in his little four-horse barouche, with postilions in red satin jackets and a mounted guard before and behind. We often walk in the Tuileries gardens, for they are lovely, though the antique Luxembourg gardens suit me better. Père Lachaise is very curious, for many of the tombs are like small rooms, and looking in one sees a table, with images or pictures of the dead, and chairs for the mourners to sit in when they come to lament. That is so Frenchy. Our rooms are on the Rue de Rivoli, and sitting on the balcony we look up and down the long, brilliant street. It is so pleasant that we spend our evenings talking there when too tired with our day's work to go out. Fred is very entertaining, and is altogether the most agreeable young man I ever knew, except Laurie, whose manners are more charming. I wish Fred was dark, for I don't fancy light men. However, the Vaughns are very rich, and come of an excellent family, so I won't find fault with their yellow hair, as my own is yellower. Next week we are off to Germany and Switzerland, and as we shall travel fast I shall only be able to give you hasty letters. I keep my diary, and try to remember correctly and describe clearly all that I see and admire, as father advised. It is good practice for me, and with my sketch-book will give you a better idea of my tour than these scribbles. Adieu. I embrace you tenderly. Votre ami. Heidelberg. My dear Mama, Having a quiet hour before we leave for Bern, I'll try to tell you what has happened, for some of it is very important, as you will see. The sail up the Rhine was perfect, and I just sat and enjoyed it with all my might. Get Father's old guide-books and read about it. I haven't words beautiful enough to describe it. At Koblenz we had a lovely time, for some students from Bonn, with whom Fred got acquainted on the boat, gave us a serenade. It was a moonlight night, and about one o'clock Flo and I were waked by the most delicious music under our windows. We flew up and hid behind the curtains, but sly peeps showed us Fred and the students singing away down below. It was the most romantic thing I ever saw. The river, the bridge of boats, the great fortress opposite, moonlight everywhere, and music fit to melt a heart of stone. When they were done we threw them down some flowers, and saw them scramble for them, kiss their hands to the invisible ladies, and go laughing away to smoke and drink beer, I suppose. Next morning Fred showed me one of the crumpled flowers in his vest pocket, and looked very sentimental. I laughed at him, and told him I didn't throw it, but Flo, which seemed to disgust him, for he tossed it out of the window and turned sensible again. I'm afraid I'm going to have trouble with that boy. It begins to look like it. The baths at Nassau were very gay, so was Baden-Baden, where Fred lost some money and I scolded him. He needs someone to look after him when Frank is not with him. Kate said once she hoped he'd marry soon, and I quite agree with her that it would be well for him. Frankfurt was delightful. I saw Goethe's house, Schiller's statue, and Danneker's famous Ariadne. It was very lovely, but I should have enjoyed it more if I had known the story better. I didn't like to ask, as everyone knew it or pretended they did. I wish Joe would tell me all about it. I ought to have read more, for I find I don't know anything, and it mortifies me." Now comes the serious part, for it happened here, and Fred is just gone. He has been so kind and jolly that we all got quite fond of him. I never thought of anything but a travelling friendship till the serenade night. Since then I've begun to feel that the moonlight walks, balcony talks, and daily adventures were something more to him than fun. 
I haven't flirted, mother, truly, but remembered what you said to me, and have done my very best. I can't help it if people like me. I don't try to make them, and it worries me if I don't care for them, though Joe says I haven't got any heart. Now I know mother will shake her head, and the girls say, Oh, the mercenary little wretch! But I've made up my mind, and if Fred asks me, I shall accept him, though I'm not madly in love. I like him, and we get on comfortably together. He is handsome, young, clever enough, and very rich—ever so much richer than the Lawrences. I don't think his family would object, and I would be very happy, for they are all kind, well-bred, generous people, and they like me. Fred, as the eldest twin, will have the estate, I suppose, and such a splendid one it is. A city-house in a fashionable street, not so showy as our big house, but twice as comfortable, and full of solid luxury, such as English people believe in. I like it, for it's genuine. I've seen the plate, the family jewels, the old servants, and pictures of the country place, with its park, great house, lovely grounds, and fine horses. Oh, it would be all I should ask! And I'd rather have it than any title such as girls snap up so readily, and find nothing behind. I may be mercenary, but I hate poverty, and I don't mean to bear it a minute longer than I can help. One of us must marry well. Meg didn't, Joe won't, Beth can't yet, so I shall and make everything okay all round. I wouldn't marry a man I hated or despised, you may be sure of that, and though Fred is not my model hero, he does very well, and in time I should get fond enough of him if he was very fond of me, and let me do just as I liked. So I have been turning the matter over in my mind the last week, for it was impossible to help seeing that Fred liked me. He said nothing, but little things showed it. He never goes with Flo, always gets on my side of the carriage, table, or promenade, looks sentimental when we are alone, and frowns at anyone else who ventures to speak to me. Yesterday at dinner, when an Austrian officer stared at us and then said something to his friend, a rakish-looking baron, about ein wunderschönes Blunchen, Fred looked as fierce as a lion, and cut his meat so savagely it nearly flew off his plate. He isn't one of the cool, stiff Englishmen, but is rather peppery, for he has Scotch blood in him, as one might guess from his bonny blue eyes. Well, last evening we went up to the castle about sunset—at least all of us but Fred, who was to meet us there after going to the post-restant for letters. We had a charming time poking about the ruins, the vaults where the monster tun is, and the beautiful gardens made by the elector long ago for his English wife. I liked the great terrace best, for the view was divine. So while the rest went to see the rooms inside, I sat there trying to sketch the grey stone lion's head on the wall, with scarlet woodbine sprays hanging round it. I felt as if I'd got into a romance sitting there, watching the Necker rolling through the valley, listening to the music of the Austrian band below, and waiting for my lover, like a real storybook girl. I had a feeling that something was going to happen, and I was ready for it. I didn't feel blushy or quaky, but quite cool, and only a little excited. By and by I heard Fred's voice, and then he came hurrying through the great arch to find me. He looked so troubled that I forgot all about myself, and asked what the matter was. He said he'd just got a letter begging him to come home, for Frank was very ill, so he was going at once on the night train, and only had time to say good-bye. I was very sorry for him, and disappointed for myself, but only for a minute, because he said, as he shook hands, and said it in a way that I could not mistake, I shall soon come back. You won't forget me, Amy. I didn't promise, but I looked at him, and he seemed satisfied, and there was no time for anything but messages and good-byes, for he was off in an hour, and we all miss him very much. I know he wanted to speak, 
but I think, from something he once hinted, that he had promised his father not to do anything of the sort yet a while, for he is a rash boy, and the old gentleman dreads a foreign daughter-in-law. We shall soon meet in Rome, and then, if I don't change my mind, I'll say, yes, thank you, when he says, will you, please? Of course, this is all very private, but I wished you to know what was going on. Don't be anxious about me. Remember I am your prudent Amy, and be sure I will do nothing rashly. Send me as much advice as you like. I'll use it if I can. I wish I could see you for a good talk, Marmy. Love and trust me. Ever your Amy. End of chapter 31「Chapter thirty two of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter thirty two. Tender Troubles. Joe, I'm anxious about Beth. Why, mother, she has seemed unusually well since the babies came. It's not her health that troubles me now, it's her spirits. I'm sure there is something on her mind, and I want you to discover what it is. What makes you think so, mother? She sits alone a good deal, and doesn't talk to her father as much as she used. I found her crying over the babies the other day. When she sings, the songs are always sad ones, and now and then I see a look in her face that I don't understand. This isn't like Beth, and it worries me. Have you asked her about it? I have tried once or twice, but she either evaded my questions or looked so distressed that I stopped. I never force my children's confidence and I seldom have to wait for long." Mrs. March glanced at Joe as she spoke, but the face opposite seemed quite unconscious of any secret disquietude but Beth's, and after sewing thoughtfully for a minute, Joe said, "'I think she's growing up, and so begins to dream dreams and have hopes and fears and fidgets, without knowing why or being able to explain them. Why, mother, Beth's eighteen, but we don't realize it, and treat her like a child, forgetting she's a woman.' "'So she is.' Dear heart, how fast you do grow up!" returned her mother with a sigh and a smile. "'Can't be helped, Marmy. So you must resign yourself to all sorts of worries, and let your birds hop out of the nest one by one. I promise never to hop very far, if that is any comfort to you." "'It's a great comfort, Joe. I always feel strong when you are at home, now Meg is gone. Beth is too feeble, and Amy too young to depend on. But when the tug comes, you are always ready." Why, you know I don't mind hard jobs much, and there must always be one scrub in a family. Amy is splendid in fine works and I'm not, but I feel in my element when all the carpets are to be taken up, or half the family falls sick at once. Amy is distinguishing herself abroad, but if anything is amiss at home, I'm your man." I leave Beth to your hands, then, for she will open her tender little heart to her Joe sooner than to anyone else. Be very kind, and don't let her think anyone watches or talks about her. If she would only get quite strong and cheerful again, I shouldn't have a wish in the world." "'Happy woman! I've got heaps!' "'My dear, what are they?' "'I'll settle Bethy's troubles, and then I'll tell you mine. They're not very wearing, so they'll keep.' And Joe stitched away, with a wise nod which set her mother's heart at rest about her for the present, at least. While apparently absorbed in her own affairs, Joe watched Beth, and after many conflicting conjectures, finally settled upon one which seemed to explain the change in her. A slight incident gave Jo the clue to the mystery, she thought, and lively fancy, loving heart, did the rest. She was affecting to write busily one Saturday afternoon, when she and Beth were alone together. Yet as she scribbled she kept her eye on her sister, 
who seemed unusually quiet. Sitting at the window Beth's work often dropped into her lap, and she leaned her head upon her hand in a dejected attitude, while her eyes rested on the dull autumnal landscape. Suddenly someone passed below, whistling like an operatic blackbird, and a voice called out, "'All serene! Coming in tonight!' Beth started, leaned forward, smiled and nodded, watched the passer-by till his quick tramp died away, then said softly, as if to herself, "'How strong and well and happy that dear boy looks!' Hm," said Joe, still intent upon her sister's face, for the bright colour faded as quickly as it came, the smile vanished, and presently a tear lay shining on the window-ledge. Beth whisked it off, and in her half-averted face read a tender sorrow that made her own eyes fill. Fearing to betray herself, she slipped away, murmuring something about needing more paper. "'Mercy on me! Beth loves Laurie!' she said, sitting down in her own room, pale with the shock of the discovery which she believed she had just made. "'I never dreamed of such a thing. What will Mother say? I wonder if her—' There Joe stopped and turned scarlet with a sudden thought. "'If he shouldn't love back again, how dreadful it would be! He must! I'll make him!' And she shook her head threateningly at the picture of the mischievous-looking boy laughing at her from the wall. "'Oh, dear, we are growing up with a vengeance. Here's Meg married in a mamma, Amy flourishing away at Paris, and Beth in love. I'm the only one that has sense enough to keep out of mischief.' Joe thought intently for a minute with her eyes fixed on the picture, then she smoothed out her wrinkled forehead and said with a decided nod at the face opposite, "'No, thank you, sir. You're very charming, but you've no more stability than a weathercock. So you needn't write touching notes and smile in that insinuating way, for it won't do a bit of good and I won't have it.' Then she sighed, and fell into a reverie from which she did not wake till the early twilight sent her down to take new observations which only confirmed her suspicion. Though Laurie flirted with Amy and joked with Joe, his manner to Beth had always been peculiarly kind and gentle, but so was everybody's. Therefore no one thought of imagining that he cared more for her than for the others. Indeed a general impression had prevailed in the family of late that our boy was getting fonder than ever of Joe, who however wouldn't hear a word upon the subject, and scolded violently if any one dared to suggest it. If they had known the various tender passages which had been nipped in the bud, they would have had the immense satisfaction of saying, "'I told you so.' But Joe hated philandering, and wouldn't allow it, always having a joke or a smile ready at the least sign of impending danger. When Laurie first went to college, he fell in love about once a month, but these small flames were as brief as ardent, did no damage, and much amused Joe, who took great interest in the alternations of hope, despair, and resignation which were confided to her in their weekly conferences. But there came a time when Laurie ceased to worship at many shrines, hinted darkly at one all-absorbing passion, and indulged occasionally in Byronic fits of gloom. Then he avoided the tender subject altogether, wrote philosophical notes to Joe, turned studious, and gave out that he was going to dig, intending to graduate in a blaze of glory. This suited the young lady better than twilight confidences, tender pressures of the hand and eloquent glances of the eye, for with Joe brain developed earlier than heart, and she preferred imaginary heroes to real ones, because when tired of them the former could be shut up in the tin kitchen till called for, and the latter were less manageable. Things were in this state when the grand discovery was made, and Joe watched Laurie that night as she had never done before. 
If she had not got the new idea into her head, she would have seen nothing unusual in the fact that Beth was very quiet, and Laurie very kind to her. But having given the rein to her lively fancy, it galloped away with her at a great pace, and common sense, being rather weakened by a long course of romance-writing, did not come to the rescue. As usual Beth lay on the sofa, and Laurie sat in a low chair close by, amusing her with all sorts of gossip, for she depended on her weekly spin, and he never disappointed her. But that evening Joe fancied that Beth's eyes rested on the lively dark face beside her with peculiar pleasure, and that she listened with intense interest to an account of some exciting cricket-match, though the phrases, caught off a tice, stumped off his ground, and the leg hit for three, were as intelligible to her as Sanskrit. She also fancied, having set her heart upon seeing it, that she saw a certain increase of gentleness in Laurie's manner, that he dropped his voice now and then, laughed less than usual, was a little absent-minded, and settled the afghan over Beth's feet with an assiduity that was really almost tender. "'Who knows? Stranger things have happened,' thought Joe as she fussed about the room. "'She will make quite an angel of him, and he will make life delightfully easy and pleasant for the dear, if they only love each other. I don't see how he can help it, and I do believe he would if the rest of us were out of the way.' As everyone was out of the way but herself, Joe began to feel that she ought to dispose of herself with all speed. But where should she go? And burning to lay herself upon the shrine of sisterly devotion, she sat down to settle that point. Now the old sofa was a regular patriarch of a sofa, long, broad, well-cushioned and low, a trifle shabby, as well it might be, for the girls had slept and sprawled on it as babies, fished over the back, rode on the arms, and had menageries under it as children and rested tired heads, dreamed dreams, and listened to tender talk on it as young women. They all loved it, for it was a family refuge, and one corner had always been Joe's favourite lounging-place. Among the many pillows that adorned the venerable couch was one, hard, round, covered with prickly horsehair and furnished with a knobby button at each end. This repulsive pillow was her especial property, being used as a weapon of defence, a barricade, or a stern preventive of too much slumber. Laurie knew this pillow well, and had cause to regard it with deep aversion, having been unmercifully pummeled with it in former days when romping was allowed, and now frequently debarred by it from the seat he most coveted next to Joe in the sofa-corner. If the sausage, as they called it, stood on end, it was a sign that he might approach and repose, but if it lay flat across the sofa, woe to man, woman, or child who dared disturb it! That evening Joe forgot to barricade her corner, and had not been in her seat five minutes, before a massive form appeared beside her, and with both arms spread over the sofa-back, both long legs stretched out before him, Laurie exclaimed with a sigh of satisfaction, "'Now this is filling up the price!' "'No slang!' snapped Joe, slamming down the pillow. But it was too late, there was no room for it, and coasting on to the floor it disappeared in a most mysterious manner. "'Come, Joe, don't be thorny. After studying himself to a skeleton all the week a fellow deserves petting and ought to get it.' Beth will pet you. I'm busy. No, she's not to be bothered with me. But you like that sort of thing, unless you've suddenly lost your taste for it. Have you? Do you hate your boy and want to fire pillows at him? Anything more wheedlesome than that touching appeal was seldom heard, but Joe quenched her boy by turning on him with a stern query. How many bouquets have you sent Miss Randall this week? Not one, upon my word. She's engaged. Now then— I'm glad of it. That's one of your foolish extravagances, sending flowers and things to girls for whom you don't care two pins. 
continued Joe reprovingly. Sensible girls, for whom I do care whole papers of pins, won't let me send them flowers and things, so what can I do? My feelings need a vent. Mother doesn't approve of flirting, even in fun. And you do flirt desperately, Teddy. I'd give anything if I could answer so do you. As I can't, I'll merely say that I don't see any harm in that pleasant little game, if all parties understand that it's only play. Well, it does look pleasant, but I can't learn how it's done. I've tried, because one feels awkward in company not to do as everybody else is doing, but I don't seem to get on," said Joe, forgetting to play mentor. Take lessons of Amy. She has a regular talent for it. Yes, she does it very prettily, and never seems to go too far. I suppose it's natural to some people to please without trying, and others to always say and do the wrong thing in the wrong place." "'I'm glad you can't flirt. It's really refreshing to see a sensible, straightforward girl who can be jolly and kind without making a fool of herself. Between ourselves, Joe, some of the girls I know really do go on at such a rate I'm ashamed of them. Oh, they don't mean any harm, I'm sure, but if they knew how we fellows talked about them afterward they'd mend their ways, I fancy." They do the same, and as their tongues are the sharpest, you fellows get the worst of it, for you are as silly as they every bit. If you behaved properly they would, but knowing you like their nonsense they keep it up, and then you blame them." "'Much you know about it, ma'am,' said Laurie in a superior tone. "'We don't like romps and flirts, though we may act as if we did sometimes. The pretty, modest girls are never talked about, except respectfully among gentlemen. Bless your innocent soul. If you could be in my place for a month, you'd see things that would astonish you a trifle. Upon my word, when I see one of those harem-scarum girls, I always want to say with our friend Cock Robin, Out upon you! Fie upon you! Bold-faced jig!" It was impossible to help laughing at the funny conflict between Laurie's chivalrous reluctance to speak ill of womankind, and his very natural dislike of the unfeminine folly of which fashionable society showed him many samples. Joe knew that young Lawrence was regarded as a most eligible parti by worldly mammas, was much smiled upon by their daughters, and flattered enough by ladies of all ages to make a coxcomb of him, so she watched him rather jealously, fearing he would be spoiled, and rejoiced more than she confessed to find that he still believed in modest girls. Returning suddenly to her admonitory tone, she said, dropping her voice, "'If you must have a vent, Teddy, Go and devote yourself to one of the pretty, modest girls whom you do respect, and not waste your time with the silly ones." "'You really advise it?' And Laurie looked at her with an odd mixture of anxiety and merriment in his face. "'Yes, I do. But you'd better wait till you're through college, on the whole, and be fitting yourself for the place meantime. You're not half good enough for—well, whoever the modest girl may be." And Joe looked a little queer likewise, for a name had almost escaped her. "'That I'm not acquiesced Laurie, with an expression of humility quite new to him, as he dropped his eyes and absently wound Joe's apron-tassel round his finger. "'Mercy on us, this will never do,' thought Joe, adding aloud, "'Go and sing to me. I'm dying for some music, and always like yours.' "'I'd rather stay here, thank you.' "'Well, you can't. There isn't room. Go and make yourself useful, since you are too big to be ornamental. I thought you hated to be tied to a woman's apron-string,' retorted Joe quoting certain rebellious words of his own. "'Ah, that depends on who wears the apron.' And Laurie gave an audacious tweak at the tassel. "'Are you going?' demanded Joe, diving for the pillow. He fled at once, and the minute it was well— "'Up with the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee!' She slipped away to return no more till the young gentleman departed in high dudgeon.
Joe lay long awake that night, and was just dropping off when the sound of a stifled sob made her fly to Beth's bedside, with the anxious inquiry, "'What is it, dear?' <laughs> "'I thought—I thought you were asleep,' sobbed Beth. "'Is it the old pain, my precious?' "'No. It's a new one. But I can bear it.' And Beth tried to check her tears. "'Tell me all about it and let me cure it as I often did the other." "'You can't. There is no cure.' There Beth's voice gave way, and clinging to her sister she cried so despairingly that Joe was frightened. "'Where is it? Shall I call mother?' "'No, no, don't call her. Don't, don't tell her. I shall be better soon. Lie down here and, and pour my head. I'll be quiet and go to sleep. Indeed I will." Joe obeyed, but as her hand went softly to and fro across Beth's hot forehead and wet eyelids, her heart was very full and she longed to speak. But young as she was, Joe had learned that hearts, like flowers, cannot be rudely handled, but must open naturally. So though she believed she knew the cause of Beth's new pain, she only said in her tenderest tone, "'Does anything trouble you, dearie?' "'Yes, Joe,' after a long pause. Wouldn't it comfort you to tell me what it is? Not now. Not yet. Then I won't ask. But remember, Bethy, that Mother and Joe are always glad to hear and help you if they can. I know it. I'll tell you by and by. Is the pain better now? Oh, yes. M much better. You are so comfortable, Joe. Go to sleep, dear. I'll stay with you. So cheek to cheek they fell asleep and on the morrow Beth seemed quite herself again, for at eighteen neither heads nor hearts ache long, and a loving word can medicine most ills. But Joe had made up her mind, and after pondering over a project for some days, she confided it to her mother. "'You asked me the other day what my wishes were. I'll tell you one of them, Marmy,' she began, as they sat along together. "'I want to go away somewhere this winter for a change.' "'Why, Joe?' and her mother looked up quickly as if the words suggested a double meaning. With her eyes on her work, Joe answered soberly, "'I want something new. I feel restless and anxious to be seeing, doing, and learning more than I am. I brood too much over my own small affairs, and need stirring up. So as I can be spared this winter I'd like to hop a little way, and try my wings.' "'Where will you hop?' "'To New York. I had a bright idea yesterday, and this is it. You know Mrs. Kirk wrote to you for some respectable young person to teach her children and sew. It's rather hard to find just the thing, but I think I should suit if I tried." "'My dear, go out to service in that great boarding-house?' And Mrs. March looked surprised, but not displeased. "'It's not exactly going out to service, for Mrs. Kirk is your friend, the kindest soul that ever lived, and would make things pleasant for me, I know. Her family is separate from the rest, and no one knows me there don't care if they do. It's honest work and I'm not ashamed of it." "'Nor I. But your writing?" "'All the better for the change. I shall see and hear new things, get new ideas, and even if I haven't much time there, I shall bring home quantities of material for my rubbish." "'I have no doubt of it. But are these your only reasons for this sudden fancy?' "'No, mother.' Joe looked up and Joe looked down, then said slowly, with sudden colour in her cheeks, it may be vain and wrong to say it, but I'm afraid Laurie is getting too fond of me. 
"'Then you don't care for him in the way it is evident he begins to care for you?' And Mrs. March looked anxious as she put the question. "'Mercy, no! I love the dear boy, as I always have, and am immensely proud of him. But as for anything more, it's out of the question.' "'I'm glad of that, Joe.' "'Why, please?' "'Because, dear, I don't think you suited to one another. As friends you are very happy, and your frequent quarrels soon blow over. But I fear you would both rebel if you were mated for life. You are too much alike, and too fond of freedom, not to mention hot tempers and strong wills, to get on happily together in a relation which needs infinite patience and forbearance, as well as love." "'That's just the feeling I had, though I couldn't express it. I'm glad you think he is only beginning to care for me. It would trouble me sadly to make him unhappy, for I couldn't fall in love with the dear old fellow merely out of gratitude, could I?' "'You are sure of his feeling for you?' The colour deepened in Joe's cheeks as she answered, with the look of mingled pleasure, pride, and pain which young girls wear when speaking of first lovers. "'I'm afraid it is so, mother. He hasn't said anything, but he looks a great deal. I think I had better go away before it comes to anything.' "'I agree with you. And if it can be managed, you shall go.' Joe looked relieved, and after a pause said, smiling, how Mrs. Moffat would wonder at your want of management if she knew, and how she will rejoice that Annie may still hope. Ah, Joe, mothers may differ in their management, but the hope is the same in all, the desire to see their children happy. Meg is so, and I am content with her success. You I leave to enjoy your liberty till you tire of it, for only then will you find that there is something sweeter. Amy is my chief care now, but her good sense will help her. For Beth, I indulge no hopes except that she may be well. By the way, she seems brighter this last day or two. Have you spoken to her? Yes, she owned she had a trouble and promised to tell me by and by. I said no more, for I think I know it. And Joe told her little story. Mrs. March shook her head and did not take so romantic a view of the case, but looked grave and repeated her opinion that, for Laurie's sake, Joe should go away for a time. "'Let us say nothing about it to him till the plan is settled. Then I'll run away before he can collect his wits and be tragic. Beth must think I'm going to please myself, as I am, for I can't talk about Laurie to her. But she can pet and comfort him after I'm gone, and so cure him of this romantic notion. He's been through so many little trials of the sort, he's used to it, and will soon get over his lovelornity.' Joe spoke hopefully but could not rid herself of the foreboding fear that this little trial would be harder than the others, and that Laurie would not get over his love-lornity as easily as heretofore. The plan was talked over in family council and agreed upon, for Mrs. Kirk gladly accepted Jo, and promised to make a pleasant home for her. The teaching would render her independent, and such leisure as she got might be made profitable by writing, while the new scenes and society would be both useful and agreeable. Joe liked the prospect and was eager to be gone, for the home nest was growing too narrow for her restless nature and adventurous spirit. When all was settled, with fear and trembling she told Laurie, but to her surprise he took it very quietly. He had been graver than usual of late, but very pleasant, and when jokingly accused of turning over a new leaf, he answered soberly, "'So I am, and I mean this one shall stay turned.' Joe was very much relieved that one of his virtuous fits should come on just then, and made her preparations with a lightened heart, for Beth seemed more cheerful, and hoped she was doing the best for all. "'One thing I leave in your especial care,' 
she said, the night before she left. "'You mean your papers?' asked Beth. "'No. My boy. Be very good to him, won't you?' "'Of course I will. But I can't fill your place. And he'll miss you sadly.' "'It won't hurt him. So remember, I leave him in your charge, to plague, pet, and keep in order.' "'I'll do my best, for your sake,' promised Beth, wondering why Joe looked at her so queerly. When Lori said good-bye, he whispered significantly, "'It won't do a bit of good, Joe. My eye is on you, so mind what you do, or I'll come and bring you home.'" End of chapter 32 Chapter 33 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 33 Joe's Journal New York, November. Dear Marmy and Beth, I'm going to write you a regular volume, for I've got heaps to tell, though I'm not a fine young lady travelling on the continent. When I lost sight of father's dear old face, I felt a trifle blue, and might have shed a briny drop or two, if an Irish lady with four small children all crying more or less hadn't diverted my mind for I amused myself by dropping gingerbread nuts over the seat every time they opened their mouths to roar. Soon the sun came out, and taking it as a good omen I cleared up likewise, and enjoyed my journey with all my heart. Mrs. Kirk welcomed me so kindly I felt at home at once, even in that big house full of strangers. She gave me a funny little sky-parlour, all she had, but there is a stove in it, and a nice table and a sunny window, so I can sit here and write whenever I like a fine view, and a church-tower opposite atone for the many stairs, and I took a fancy to my den on the spot. The nursery, where I am to teach and sew, is a pleasant room next Mrs. Kirk's private parlour, and the two little girls are pretty children, rather spoiled, I fancy, but they took to me after telling them the seven bad pigs, and I've no doubt I shall make a model governess. I am to have my meals with the children, if I prefer it to the great table, and for the present I do, for I am bashful though no one will believe it. "'Now, my dear, make yourself at home,' said Mrs. K. in her motherly way. "'I'm on the drive from morning to night, as you may suppose, with such a family, but a great anxiety will be off my mind if I know the children are safe with you. My rooms are always open to you, and your own shall be as comfortable as I can make it. There are some pleasant people in the house if you feel sociable, and your evenings are always free. Come to me if anything goes wrong, and be as happy as you can. There's the tea-bell. I must run and change my cap.' And off she bustled leaving me to settle myself in my new nest. As I went downstairs soon after, I saw something I liked. The flights are very long in this tall house, and as I stood waiting at the head of the third one for a little servant-girl to lumber up, I saw a gentleman come along behind her, take the heavy hod of coal out of her hand, carry it all the way up, put it down at a door nearby, and walk away, saying with a kind nod and a foreign accent, "'It goes better so. The little Beck is too young to have such heaviness.' Wasn't it good of him? I like such things, for, as father says, trifles show character. When I mentioned it to Mrs. K. that evening, she laughed and said, That must have been Professor Bear. He's always doing things of that sort. Mrs. K. told me he was from Berlin, very learned and good, but poor as a church mouse, and gives lessons to support himself and two little orphan nephews whom he is educating here, according to the wishes of his sister, who married an American. Not a very romantic story, but it interested me and I was glad to hear that Mrs. K. lends him her parlour for some of his scholars. 
There is a glass door between it and the nursery, and I mean to peep at him, and then I'll tell you how he looks. He's almost forty, so it's no harm, Marmy. After tea and a go-to-bed romp with the little girls, I attacked the big work-basket, and had a quiet evening chatting with my new friend. I shall keep a journal letter, and send it once a week. So good night, and more to-morrow. Tuesday Eve Had a lively time in my seminary this morning, for the children acted like Sancho, and at one time I really thought I should shake them all round. Some good angel inspired me to try gymnastics, and I kept it up till they were glad to sit down and keep still. After luncheon the girl took them out for a walk, and I went to my needlework like little Mabel with a willing mind. I was thanking my stars that I'd learned to make nice buttonholes, when the parlour door opened and shut, and someone began to hum, Kennst du das Land, like a big bumblebee. It was dreadfully improper, I know, but I couldn't resist the temptation, and lifting one end of the curtain before the glass door, I peeped in. Professor Bear was there, and while he arranged his books I took a good look at him a regular German, rather stout, with brown hair tumbled all over his head, a bushy beard, good nose, the kindest eyes I ever saw, and a splendid big voice that does one's ears good, after our sharp or slipshod American gabble. His clothes were rusty, his hands were large, and he hadn't a really handsome feature in his face, except his beautiful teeth. Yet I liked him, for he had a fine head, his linen was very nice, and he looked like a gentleman though two buttons were off his coat and there was a patch on one shoe. He looked sober in spite of his humming, till he went to the window to turn the hyacinth bulbs toward the sun and stroke the cat, who received him like an old friend. Then he smiled, and when a tap came at the door, called out in a loud, brisk tone, Herein? I was just going to run, when I caught sight of a morsel of a child carrying a big book, and stopped to see what was going on. You want me bear? said the mite slamming down her book and running to meet him. "'Thou shalt have thy bear. Come, then, and take a good hug from him, my Tina,' said the professor, catching her up with a laugh and holding her so high over his head that she had to stoop her little face to kiss him. "'Now me must study my lesson,' went on the funny little thing. So he put her up at the table, opened the great dictionary she had brought, and gave her a paper and pencil, and she scribbled away turning a leaf now and then and passing her little fat finger down the page as if finding a word, so soberly that I nearly betrayed myself by a laugh, while Mr. Bear stood stroking her pretty hair with a fatherly look that made me think she must be his own, though she looked more French than German. Another knock and the appearance of two young ladies sent me back to my work, and there I virtuously remained through all the noise and gabbling that went on next door. One of the girls kept laughing affectedly and saying, "'Now, Professor!' in a coquettish tone, and the other pronounced her German with an accent that must have made him hard to keep sober. Both seemed to try his patience sorely, for more than once I heard him say emphatically, "'No, no, it is not so. You have not attended to what I say.' And once there was a loud rap, as if he struck the table with his book, followed by the despairing exclamation, "'Prut, it all goes bad this day.' Poor man, I pitied him, and when the girls were gone took just one more peep to see if he survived it. He seemed to have thrown himself back in his chair, tired out, and sat there with his eyes shut till the clock struck two, when he jumped up, put his books in his pocket, as if ready for another lesson, and taking little Tina, who had fallen asleep on the sofa in his arms, he carried her quietly away. I fancy he has a hard life of it. Mrs. Kirk asked me if I wouldn't go down to the five o'clock dinner, and feeling a little bit homesick I thought I would, 
just to see what sort of people are under the same roof with me. So I made myself respectable and tried to slip in behind Mrs. Kirk, but as she is short and I'm tall, my efforts at concealment were rather a failure. She gave me a seat by her, and after my face cooled off I plucked up courage and looked about me. The long table was full, and everyone intent on getting their dinner, the gentlemen especially, who seemed to be eating on time, for they bolted in every sense of the word, vanishing as soon as they were done. There was the usual assortment of young men absorbed in themselves, young couples absorbed in each other, married ladies in their babies, and old gentlemen in politics. I don't think I shall care to have much to do with any of them, except one sweet-faced maiden lady, who looks as if she had something in her. Cast away at the very bottom of the table was the professor, shouting answers to the questions of a very inquisitive, deaf old gentleman on one side, and talking philosophy with a Frenchman on the other. If Amy had been here, she'd have turned her back on him forever, because, sad to relate, he had a great appetite, and shoveled in his dinner in a manner which would have horrified her ladyship. I didn't mind, for I like to see folks eat with relish, as Hannah says, and the poor man must have needed a deal of food after teaching idiots all day. As I went upstairs after dinner, two of the young men were settling their hats before the hall mirror, and I heard one say low to the other, Who's the new party? Governess, or something of that sort. What the deuce is she at her table for? Friend of the old ladies. Handsome head, but no style. Not a bit of it. Give us a light and come on. I felt angry at first, and then I didn't care, for a governess is as good as a clerk, and I've got sense if I haven't style, which is more than some people have, judging from the remarks of the elegant beings who clattered away smoking like bad chimneys. I hate ordinary people. Thursday. Yesterday was a quiet day spent in teaching, sewing, and writing in my little room, which is very cosy, with a light and fire. I picked up a few bits of news and was introduced to the professor. It seems that Tina is the child of the Frenchwoman who does the fine ironing in the laundry here. The little thing has lost her heart to Mr. Bear, and follows him about the house like a dog whenever he is at home, which delights him, as he is very fond of children, though a bachelor. Kitty and Minnie Kirk likewise regard him with affection, and tell all sorts of stories about the plays he invents, the presents he brings, and the splendid tales he tells. The younger men quiz him, it seems, call him Old Fritz, Lager Beer, Ursa Major, and make all manner of jokes on his name. But he enjoys it like a boy, Mrs. Kirk says, and takes it so good-naturedly that they all like him in spite of his foreign ways. The maiden lady is a Miss Norton, rich, cultivated, and kind. She spoke to me at dinner to-day, for I went to table again, it's such fun to watch people, and asked me to come and see her at her room. She has fine books and pictures, knows interesting persons, and seems friendly, so I shall make myself agreeable, for I do want to get into good society, only it isn't the same sort that Amy likes. I was in our parlour last evening when Mr. Bear came in with some newspapers for Mrs. Kirk. She wasn't there, but Minnie, who was a little old woman, introduced me very prettily. This is Mama's friend, Miss March. Yes, and she's jolly and we like her lots, added Kitty, who is an enfant terrible. We both bowed and then we laughed, for the prim introduction and the blunt addition were rather a comical contrast. Ah, yes, I hear these naughty ones go to vex you, Miss Marsh. If so again, call me and I come, he said with a threatening frown that delighted the little wretches. I promised I would and he departed but it seems as if I was doomed to see a good deal of him, for to-day as I passed his door on my way out, by accident I knocked against it with my umbrella. It blew open, and there he stood in his dressing-gown, with a big blue sock on one hand and a darning-needle in the other. 
He didn't seem at all ashamed of it, for when I explained and hurried on, he waved his hand, sock and all, saying in his loud, cheerful way, "'You have a fine day to make your walk. Bon voyage, mademoiselle.' I laughed all the way downstairs. But it was a little pathetic also to think of the poor man having to mend his own clothes. The German gentleman embroider, I know, but darning hose is another thing, and not so pretty. Saturday. Nothing has happened to write about, except to call on Miss Norton, who has a room full of pretty things, and who is very charming, for she showed me all her treasures, and asked me if I would go sometimes with her to lectures and concerts as her escort, if I enjoyed them. She put it as a favour, but I'm sure Mrs. Kirk has told her about us, and she does it out of kindness to me. I'm as proud as Lucifer, but such favours from people don't burden me, and I accepted gratefully. When I got back to the nursery there was such an uproar in the parlour that I looked in, and there was Mr. Bear down on his hands and knees with Tina on his back, Kitty leading him with a jump-rope, and Minnie feeding two small boys with seed-cakes as they roared and ramped in cages built of chairs. "'We are playing nursery,' explained Kitty. "'This is mine epilent,' added Tina, holding on by the professor's hair. Mama always allows us to do what we like Saturday afternoon when Franz and Emil come, doesn't she, Mr. Bear?" said Minnie. The Ephelund sat up, looking as much in earnest as any of them, and said soberly to me, I give you my word, it is so. If you make too large a noise, you shall say, Hush to us, and we go more softly. I promised to do so, but left the door open and enjoyed the fun as much as they did, for a more glorious frolic I never witnessed. They played tag and soldiers danced and sang, and when it began to grow dark they all piled onto the sofa about the professor, while he told charming fairy stories of the storks on the chimney-tops, and the little koblods who ride the snowflakes as they fall. I wish Americans were as simple and natural as Germans, don't you? I'm so fond of writing. I should go spinning on forever if motives of economy didn't stop me, for though I've used thin paper and written fine, I tremble to think of the stamps this long letter will need. Pray forward Amy's as soon as you can spare them. My small news will sound very flat after her splendors, but you will like them, I know. Is Teddy studying so hard that he can't find time to write to his friends? Take good care of him for me, Beth, and tell me all about the babies, and give heaps of love to every one. From your faithful, Joe. P.S. On reading over my letter it strikes me as rather berry, but I am always interested in odd people, as I really had nothing else to write about. Bless you. December. My precious Betsy. As this is to be a scribble-scrabble letter, I direct it to you, for it may amuse you and give you some idea of my goings-on, for though quiet they are rather amusing, for which, oh, be joyful, after what Amy would call Herculaneum efforts, in the way of mental and moral agriculture, my young ideas begin to shoot, and my little twigs to bend as I could wish. They are not so interesting to me as Tina and the boys but I do my duty by them, and they are fond of me. Franz and Emile are jolly little lads, quite after my own heart, for the mixture of German and American spirit in them produces a constant state of effervescence. Saturday afternoons are riotous times, whether spent in the house or out, for on pleasant days they all go to walk like a seminary, with the professor and myself to keep order, and then such fun! We are very good friends now, and I've begun to take lessons. I really couldn't help it and it all came about in such a droll way that I must tell you. To begin at the beginning, 
Mrs. Kirk called to me one day as I passed Mr. Bear's room where she was rummaging. "'Did you ever see such a den, my dear? Just come and help me put these books to rights, for I've turned everything upside down trying to discover what he has done with the six new handkerchiefs I gave him not long ago.' I went in, and while we worked I looked about me, for it was a den, to be sure. Books and papers everywhere, a broken meerschaum, and an old flute over the mantelpiece as if done with, a ragged bird without any tail chirped on one window-seat, and a box of white mice adorned the other. Half-finished boats and bits of straying lay among the manuscripts. Dirty little boots stood drying before the fire, and traces of the dearly beloved boys, for whom he makes a slave of himself, were to be seen all over the room. After a grand rummage three of the missing articles were found, one over the bird-cage, one covered with ink, and a third burned brown, having been used as a holder. "'Such a man!' laughed good-natured Mrs. K. as she put the relics in the rag-bag. I suppose the others are torn up to rig ships, bandage cut fingers, or make kite tails. It's dreadful, but I can't scold him. He's so absent-minded and good-natured, he lets those boys ride over him roughshod. I agreed to do his washing and mending, but he forgets to give out his things, and I forget to look them over, so he comes to a sad pass sometimes. Let me mend them, said I. I don't mind it, and he needn't know. I'd like to. He's so kind to me about bringing my letters and lending books. So I have got his things in order and knit heels into two pairs of the socks, for they were boggled out of shape with his queer darns. Nothing was said, and I hoped he wouldn't find it out, but one day last week he caught me at it. Hearing the lessons he gives to others has interested and amused me so much that I took a fancy to learn, for Tina runs in and out, leaving the door open, and I can hear. I had been sitting near this door finishing off the last sock, and trying to understand what he said to a new scholar, who is as stupid as I am. The girl had gone, and I thought he had also. It was so still, and I was busily gabbling over a verb and rocking to and fro in a most absurd way, when a little crow made me look up, and there was Mr. Bear looking and laughing quietly, while he made signs to Tina not to betray him. So, he said, as I stopped and stared like a goose, you peep at me. I peep at you, and this is not bad. But see, I am not pleasanting when I say, have you a wish for German? Yes, but you are too busy. I'm too stupid to learn, I blundered out, as red as a peony. Prut, we will make the time, and we fail not to find the sense. At evening I shall give a little lesson with much gladness, for, look you, Miss March, I have this debt to pay. And he pointed to my work. Yes, they say to one another, these so kind ladies. He is a stupid old fellow, he will see not what we do. You will never observe that this sock heels go not in holes any more. You will think his buttons grow out new when they fall, and believe that strings make their cells. Ah, but I have an eye, and I see much. I have a heart, and I feel thanks for this. Come, a little lesson then and now, or no more good fairy works for me and mine. Of course I couldn't say anything after that, and as it really is a splendid opportunity, I made the bargain, and we began. I took four lessons, and then I stuck fast in a grammatical bog. The professor was very patient with me, but it must have been torment to him, and now and then he'd look at me with such an expression of mild despair that it was a toss-up with me whether to laugh or cry. I tried both ways, and when it came to a sniff or utter mortification and woe, he just threw the grammar on the floor and marched out of the room. I felt myself disgraced and deserted forever but didn't blame him a particle, and was scrambling my papers together, 
meaning to rush upstairs and shake myself hard, when in he came, as brisk and beaming as if I'd cover myself in glory. Now we should try a new way. You and I will read these pleasant little Märchen together, and dig no more in that dry book. That goes in the corner for making us trouble. He spoke so kindly, and opened Hans Andersen's fairy tales so invitingly before me that I was more ashamed than ever, and went at my lesson in a neck-or-nothing style that seemed to amuse him immensely. I forgot my bashfulness, and pegged away, no other word will express it, with all my might, tumbling over long words, pronouncing according to inspiration of the minute, and doing my very best. When I finished reading my first page and stopped for breath, he clapped his hands and cried out in his hearty way, "'That is good. Now we go well. My turn. I do him in German. Give me your ear.' And away he went, rumbling out the words with his strong voice and a relish which was good to see as well as hear. Fortunately the story was the constant tin soldier, which is droll, you know, so I could laugh, and I did, though I didn't understand half he read, for I couldn't help it. He was so earnest, I so excited, and the whole thing so comical. After that we get on better, and now I read my lessons pretty well, for this way of studying suits me, and I can see that the grammar gets tucked into the tales and poetry as one gives pills in jelly. I like it very much, and he doesn't seem tired of it yet, which is very good of him, isn't it? I mean to give him something on Christmas, for I dare not offer money. Tell me something nice, Marmy. I'm glad Laurie seems so happy and busy that he has given up smoking and lets his hair grow. You see, Beth manages him better than I did. I'm not jealous, dear. Do your best. Only don't make a saint of him. I'm afraid I couldn't like him without a spice of human naughtiness. Read him bits of my letters. I haven't had time to write much, and that will do just as well. Thank heaven Beth continues so comfortable. January A happy new year to you all, my dearest family which of course includes Mr. L. and a young man by the name of Teddy. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your Christmas bundle, for I didn't get it till night and had given up hoping. Your letter came in the morning, but you said nothing about a parcel, meaning it for a surprise, so I was disappointed, for I'd had a kind of feeling that you wouldn't forget me. I felt a little low in my mind as I sat up in my room after tea, and when the big, muddy, battered-looking bundle was brought to me I just hugged it and pranced. It was so homey and refreshing that I sat down on the floor and read and looked and ate and laughed and cried, in my usual absurd way. The things were just what I wanted, and all the better for being made instead of bought. Beth's new ink bib was capital, and Hannah's box of hard gingerbread will be a treasure. I'll be sure to wear the nice red flannels you sent, Mommy, and read carefully the books Father has marked. Thank you all, heaps and heaps. Speaking of books reminds me that I'm getting rich in that line for on New Year's Day Mr. Bear gave me a fine Shakespeare. It is one he values much, and I've often admired it, set in a place of honor with his German Bible, Plato, Homer, and Milton. So you may imagine how I felt when he brought it down without its cover, and showed me my own name in it, from my friend Friedrich Bear. You say often you wish a library. Here, I give you one, for between these lids, he meant covers, is many books in one. Read him well and he will help you much, for the study of character in this book will help you to read it in the world and paint it with your pen." I thanked him as well as I could, and talk now about my library as if I had a hundred books. I never knew how much there was in Shakespeare before, but then I never had a bear to explain it to me. Now don't laugh at his horrid name, 
It isn't pronounced either bear or beer, as people will say it, but something between the two, as only Germans can give it. I'm glad you both like what I tell you about him, and I hope you will know him some day. Mother would admire his warm heart, father his wise head. I admire both, and feel rich in my new friend Friedrich Bayer. Not having much money or knowing what he'd like, I got several little things and put them about the room, where he would find them unexpectedly. They were useful, pretty, or funny, a new standish on his table, a little vase for his flower—he always has one—or a bit of green in a glass to keep him fresh, he says, and a holder for his blower, so that he needn't burn up what Amy calls mouchoir. I made it like those Beth invented, a big butterfly with a fat body, and black and yellow wings, worsted feelers, and bead eyes. It took his fancy immensely, and he put it on his mantelpiece as an article of virtue, so it was rather a failure after all. Poor as he is, he didn't forget a servant or a child in the house, and not a soul here, from the French laundry woman to Miss Norton, forgot him. I was so glad of that. They got up a masquerade, and had a gay time on New Year's Eve. I didn't mean to go down, having no dress. But at the last minute Mrs. Kirk remembered some old brocades, and Miss Norton lent me lace and feathers. So I dressed up as Mrs. Malaprop, and sailed in with a mask on. No one knew me, for I disguised my voice, and no one dreamed of the silent, haughty Miss March, for they think I am very stiff and cool, most of them, and so I am to whippersnappers, could dance and dress and burst out into a nice derangement of epitaphs, like an allegory on the banks of the Nile. I enjoyed it very much, and when we unmasked it was fun to see them stare at me. I heard one of the young men tell another that he knew I'd been an actress, in fact. He thought he'd remember seeing me at one of the minor theatres. Meg will relish that joke. Mr. Bear was Nick Bottom, and Tina was Titania, a perfect little fairy in his arms. To see them dance was quite a landscape, to use a teddyism. I had a very happy New Year after all, and when I thought it over in my room I felt as if I was getting on a little in spite of my many failures, for I'm cheerful all the time now, work with a will, and take more interest in other people than I used to, which is satisfactory. Bless you all. Ever your loving, Joe. End of chapter 33Chapter 34 of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 34 Friend. Though very happy in the social atmosphere about her, and very busy with the daily work that earned her bread and made it sweeter for the effort, Joe still found time for literary labors. The purpose which now took possession of her was a natural one to a poor and ambitious girl, but the means she took to gain her end were not the best. She saw that money conferred power, money and power, therefore, she resolved to have, not to be used for herself alone, but for those whom she loved more than life. The dream of filling home with comforts, giving Beth everything she wanted, from strawberries in winter to an organ in her bedroom, going abroad herself, and always having more than enough, so that she might indulge in the luxury of charity, had been for years Joe's most cherished castle in the air. The prize-story experience had seemed to open a way which might, after long travelling and much uphill work, lead to this delightful chateau on Espana but the novel disaster quenched her courage for a time, 
for public opinion is a giant which has frightened stouter-hearted jacks on bigger beanstalks than hers. Like that immortal hero, she reposed a while after the first attempt, which resulted in a tumble and the least lovely of the giant's treasures, if I do remember rightly. But the up-again-and-take-another spirit was as strong in Joe as in Jack, so she scrambled up on the shady side this time and got more booty, but nearly left behind her what was far more precious than the money-bags. She took to writing sensation stories, for in those dark ages even all perfect America read rubbish. She told no one, but concocted a thrilling tale, and boldly carried it herself to Mr. Dashwood, editor of the weekly Volcano. She had never read Sartor Resartus, but she had a womanly instinct that clothes possess an influence more powerful over many than the worth of character or the magic of manners. So she dressed herself in her best, and trying to persuade herself that she was neither excited nor nervous, bravely climbed two pairs of dark and dirty stairs to find herself in a disorderly room, a cloud of cigar-smoke, and the presence of three gentlemen, sitting with their heels rather higher than their hats, which articles of dress none of them took the trouble to remove on her appearance. Somewhat daunted by this reception, Joe hesitated on the threshold, murmuring in much embarrassment, "'Excuse me. I was looking for the weekly volcano office. I wished to see Mr. Dashwood.' Down went the highest pair of heels, up rose the smokiest gentleman, and carefully cherishing his cigar between his fingers, he advanced with a nod and a countenance expressive of nothing but sleep. Feeling that she must get through the matter somehow, Joe produced her manuscript, and, blushing redder and redder with each sentence, blundered out fragments of the little speech carefully prepared for the occasion. "'A friend of mine desired me to offer—a story, just as an experiment—would like your opinion. Be glad to write more if this suits.' While she blushed and blundered, Mr. Dashwood had taken the manuscript, and was turning over the leaves with a pair of rather dirty fingers, and casting critical glances up and down the neat pages. "'Not a first attempt, I take it,' observing that the pages were numbered, covered only on one side, and not tied up with a ribbon, sure sign of a novice. "'No, sir. She has had some experience, and got a prize for a tale in the Blarney Stone Banner.' "'Oh, did she?' And Mr. Dashwood gave Joe a quick look, which seemed to take note of everything she had on, from the bow in her bonnet to the buttons on her boots. "'Well, you can leave it, if you'd like. We've more of this sort of thing on hand than we know what to do with at present, but I'll run my eye over it and give you an answer next week.' Now Joe did not like to leave it, for Mr. Dashwood didn't suit her at all, but under the circumstances there was nothing for her to do but bow and walk away, looking particularly tall and dignified, as she was apt to do when nettled or abashed. Just then she was both, for it was perfectly evident from the knowing glances exchanged among the gentlemen that her little fiction of my friend was considered a good joke, and a laugh, produced by some inaudible remark of the editor as he closed the door, completed her discomfiture. Half resolving never to return, she went home and worked off her irritation by stitching pinafores vigorously, and in an hour or two was cool enough to laugh over the scene and long for next week. When she went again, Mr. Dashwood was alone, whereat she rejoiced. Mr. Dashwood was much wider awake than before, which was also agreeable, 
and Mr. Dashwood was not too deeply absorbed in a cigar to remember his manners, so the second interview was much more comfortable than the first. "'We'll take this,' editors never say I, "'if you don't object to a few alterations. It's too long, but omitting the passages I've marked will make it just the right length,' he said in a business-like tone. Joe hardly knew her own manuscript again, so crumpled and underscored were its pages and paragraphs, but feeling as a tender parent might on being asked to cut off her baby's legs in order that it might fit into a new cradle, she looked at the marked passages, and was surprised to find that all the moral reflections, which she had carefully put in as ballast for much romance, had been stricken out. "'But, sir, I thought every story should have some sort of a moral, so I took care to have a few of my sinners repent.' Mr. Dashwood's editorial gravity relaxed into a smile, for Joe had forgotten her friend, and spoken as only an author could. "'People want to be amused, not preached at, you know. Morals don't sell nowadays.' Which was not quite a correct statement, by the way. "'You think it would do with these alterations, then?' "'Yes. It's a new plot, and pretty well worked up. Language good, and so on.' was Mr. Dashwood's affable reply. "'What do you—that is, what compensation—' began Joe, not exactly knowing how to express herself. "'Oh, yes. Well, uh, we give from twenty-five to thirty for things of this sort. Pay when it comes out,' returned Mr. Dashwood, as if that point had escaped him. Such trifles do escape the editorial mind, it is said. "'Very well. You can have it.' said Joe, handing back the story with a satisfied air, for after the dollar a column work, even twenty-five seemed good pay. "'Shall I tell my friend you will take another if she has one better than this?' asked Joe, unconscious of her little slip of the tongue, and emboldened by her success. "'Well, we'll look at it. Can't promise to take it. Tell her to make it short and spicy, and never mind the moral.' "'What name would your friend like to put on it?' "'In a careless tone. "'None at all, if you please. "'She doesn't wish her name to appear, "'and has no nom de plume,' said Joe, "'blushing in spite of herself. "'Just as she likes, of course. "'The tale will be out next week. "'Will you call for the money, or shall I send it?' "'asked Mr. Dashwood, "'who felt a natural desire to know "'who his new contributor might be. "'I'll call. "'Good morning, sir.' and as she departed, Mr. Dashwood put up his feet, with the graceful remark, "'Poor and proud, as usual. But she'll do.' Following Mr. Dashwood's directions, and making Mrs. Northbury her model, Joe rashly took a plunge into the frothy sea of sensational literature, but thanks to the life-preserver thrown her by a friend, she came up again not much the worse for her ducking. Like most young scribblers, she went abroad for her characters and scenery, and banditti, counts, gypsies, nuns, and duchesses appeared upon her stage, and played their parts with as much accuracy and spirit as could be expected. Her readers were not particular about such trifles as grammar, punctuation, and probability, and Mr. Dashwood graciously permitted her to fill his columns at the lowest prices, not thinking it necessary to tell her that the real cause of his hospitality was the fact that one of his hacks, on being offered higher wages, had basely left him in the lurch. She soon became interested in her work, for her emaciated purse grew stout, and the little hoard she was making to take Beth to the mountains next summer grew slowly but surely as the weeks passed, 
One thing disturbed her satisfaction, and that was that she did not tell them at home. She had a feeling that mother and father would not approve, and preferred to have her own way first, and beg pardon afterward. It was easy to keep her secret, for no name appeared with her stories. Mr. Dashwood had of course found it out very soon, but promised to be dumb, and for a wonder kept his word. She thought it would do her no harm, for she sincerely meant to write nothing of which she would be ashamed, and quieted all pricks of conscience by anticipations of the happy minute when she should show her earnings and laugh over her well-kept secret. But Mr. Dashwood rejected any but thrilling tales, and as thrills could not be produced except by harrowing up the souls of the readers, history and romance, land and sea, science and art, police records and lunatic asylums had to be ransacked for the purpose. Jo soon found that her innocent experience had given her but few glimpses of the tragic world which underlies society, so regarding it in a business light, she set about supplying her deficiencies with characteristic energy. Eager to find material for stories, and bent on making them original in plot, if not masterly in execution, she searched newspapers for accidents, incidents, and crimes. She excited the suspicions of public librarians by asking for works on poisons. She studied faces in the street, and characters, good, bad, or indifferent, all about her. She delved in the dust of ancient times for facts or fictions so old that they were as good as new, and introduced herself to folly, sin, and misery, as well as her limited opportunities allowed. She thought she was prospering finely, but unconsciously she was beginning to desecrate some of the womanliest attributes of a woman's character. She was living in bad society, and imaginary though it was, its influence affected her, for she was feeding heart and fancy on dangerous and unsubstantial food, and was fast brushing the innocent bloom from her nature by a premature acquaintance with the darker side of life, which comes soon enough to all of us. She was beginning to feel rather than see this, for much describing of other people's passions and feelings set her to studying and speculating about her own, a morbid amusement in which healthy young minds do not voluntarily indulge. Wrongdoing always brings its own punishment, and when Jo most needed hers she got it. I don't know whether the study of Shakespeare helped her to read character, or the natural instinct of a woman for what was honest, brave, and strong, but while endowing her imaginary heroes with every perfection under the sun, Jo was discovering a live hero, who interested her in spite of many human imperfections. Mr. Bear, in one of their conversations, had advised her to study simple, true, and lovely characters wherever she found them, as good training for a writer. Jo took him at his word, for she coolly turned round and studied him, a proceeding which would have much surprised him had he known it, for the worthy professor was very humble in his own conceit. Why everybody liked him was what puzzled Jo at first. He was neither rich nor great, young nor handsome in no respect what is called fascinating, imposing, or brilliant, and yet he was as attractive as a genial fire, and people seemed to gather about him as naturally as about a warm hearth. He was poor, yet always appeared to be giving something away. A stranger, yet every one was his friend. No longer young, but as happy-hearted as a boy. Plain and peculiar, yet his face looked beautiful to many, and his oddities were freely forgiven for his sake. Jo often watched him, trying to discover the charm, and at last decided that it was benevolence which worked the miracle. If he had any sorrow, it sat with its head under its wing, and he turned only his sunny side to the world. 
there were lines upon his forehead, but time seemed to have touched him gently, remembering how kind he was to others. The pleasant curves about his mouth were the memorials of many friendly words and cheery laughs. His eyes were never cold or hard, and his big hand had a warm, strong grasp that was more expressive than words. His very clothes seemed to partake of the hospitable nature of the wearer. They looked as if they were at ease, and liked to make him comfortable. His capacious waistcoat was suggestive of a large heart underneath. His rusty coat had a social air, and the baggy pockets plainly proved that little hands often went in empty and came out full. His very boots were benevolent, and his collars never stiff and raspy like other people's. "'That's it,' said Jo to herself when she at length discovered that genuine good-will toward one's fellow-men could beautify and dignify even a stout German teacher, who shoveled in his dinner, darned his own socks, and was burdened with the name of Bear. Jo valued goodness highly, but she also possessed a most feminine respect for intellect, and a little discovery which she made about the professor added much to her regard for him. He never spoke of himself and no one ever knew that in his native city he had been a man much honoured and esteemed for learning and integrity, till a countryman came to see him. He never spoke of himself, and in a conversation with Miss Norton divulged the pleasing fact. From her Joe learned it, and liked it all the better because Mr. Bear had never told it. She felt proud to know that he was an honoured professor in Berlin, though only a poor language-master in America and his homely, hard-working life was much beautified by the spice of romance which this discovery gave it. Another and a better gift than intellect was shown her in a most unexpected manner. Miss Norton had the entree into most society, which Jo would have had no chance of seeing but for her. The solitary woman felt an interest in the ambitious girl, and kindly conferred many favours of this sort both on Jo and the professor. She took them with her one night to a select symposium held in honour of several celebrities. Jo went prepared to bow down and adore the mighty ones whom she had worshipped with youthful enthusiasm far off, but her reverence for genius received a severe shock that night, and it took her some time to recover from the discovery that the great creatures were only men and women after all. Imagine her dismay, on stealing a glance of timid admiration at the poet whose lines suggested an ethereal being fed on spirit, fire, and dew, to behold him devouring his supper with an ardour which flushed his intellectual countenance. Turning as from a fallen idol, she made other discoveries which rapidly dispelled her romantic illusions. The great novelist vibrated between two decanters with the regularity of a pendulum. The famous divine flirted openly with one of the Madame de Staals of the age, who looked daggers at another Corinne, who was amiably satirizing her, after outmanoeuvring her in efforts to absorb the profound philosopher who imbibed tea Johnsonianly and appeared to slumber, the loquacity of the lady rendering speech impossible. The scientific celebrities, forgetting their mollusks and glacial periods, gossiped about art, while devoting themselves to oysters and ices with characteristic energy. The young musician, who was charming the city like a second Orpheus, talked horses, and the specimen of the British nobility present happened to be the most ordinary man of the party. Before the evening was half over, Jo felt so completely disillusioned that she sat down in a corner to recover herself. Mr. Bear soon joined her, looking rather out of his element, and presently several of the philosophers, each mounted on his hobby, came ambling up to hold an intellectual tournament in the recess. 
The conversations were miles beyond Joe's comprehension, but she enjoyed it. Though Kant and Hegel were unknown gods, the subjective and objective unintelligible terms, and the only thing evolved from her inner consciousness was a bad headache after it was all over. It dawned upon her gradually that the world was being picked to pieces and put together on new and, according to the talkers, on infinitely better principles than before, that religion was in a fair way to be reasoned into nothingness, and intellect was to be the only god. Joe knew nothing about philosophy or metaphysics of any sort, but a curious excitement, half pleasurable, half painful, came over her as she listened with a sense of being turned adrift into time and space, like a young balloon out on a holiday. She looked round to see how the professor liked it, and found him looking at her with the grimmest expression she had ever seen him wear. He shook his head and beckoned her to come away, but she was fascinated just then by the freedom of speculative philosophy, and kept her seat, trying to find out what the wise gentleman intended to rely upon after they had annihilated all the old beliefs. Now Mr. Bear was a diffident man and slow to offer his own opinions, not because they were unsettled, but too sincere and earnest to be lightly spoken. As he glanced from Joe to several other young people, attracted by the brilliancy of the philosophic pyrotechnics, he knit his brows and longed to speak, fearing that some inflammable young soul would be led astray by the rockets, to find when the display was over that they had only an empty stick or a scorched hand. He bore it as long as he could, but when he was appealed to for an opinion, he blazed up with honest indignation and defended religion with all the eloquence of truth, an eloquence which made his broken English musical and his plain face beautiful. He had a hard fight, for the wise men argued well, but he didn't know when he was beaten, and stood to his colors like a man. Somehow, as he talked, the world got right again to Joe. The old beliefs that had lasted so long seemed better than the new. God was not a blind force, and immortality was not a pretty fable, but a blessed fact. She felt as if she had solid ground under her feet again, and when Mr. Bear paused, out-talked but not one whit convinced, Joe wanted to clap her hands and thank him. She did neither, but she remembered the scene, and gave the professor her heartiest respect, for she knew it cost him an effort to speak out then and there, because his conscience would not let him be silent. She began to see that character is a better possession than money, rank, intellect, or beauty, and to feel that if greatness is what a wise man is to find it to be—truth, reverence, and goodwill—then her friend Friedrich Baer was not only good, but great. This belief strengthened daily. She valued his esteem, she coveted his respect, she wanted to be worthy of his friendship. And just when the wish was sincerest, she came near to losing everything. It all grew out of a cocked hat, for one evening the professor came in to give Joe her lesson with a paper soldier cap on his head, which Tina had put there, and he had forgotten to take off. "'It's evident he doesn't look in his glass before coming down,' thought Joe, with a smile, as he said, "'Good evening,' and sat soberly down, quite unconscious of the ludicrous contrast between his subject and his headgear, for he was going to read her the death of Wallenstein. She said nothing at first, for she liked to hear him laugh out his big hearty laugh when anything funny happened, so she left him to discover it for himself, and presently forgot all about it, for to hear a German read Schiller is rather an absorbing occupation. After the reading came the lesson, which was a lively one, for Joe was in a gay mood that night, 
and the cocked hat kept her eyes dancing with merriment. The professor didn't know what to make of her, and stopped at last to ask with an air of mild surprise that was irresistible. "'Miss March, for what do you laugh in your master's face? Have you no respect for me? That you go on so bad?' "'How can I be respectful, sir, when you forget to take your hat off?' said Joe. Lifting his hand to his head, the absent-minded professor gravely felt and removed the little cocked hat, looked at it a minute, and then threw back his head and laughed like a merry bass viol. "'Ah, I see him now. It is that imp Tina who makes me a fool with my cap. Well, it is nothing. But, see you, if this lesson goes not well, you too shall bear him.' But the lesson did not go at all for a few minutes, because Mr. Bear caught sight of a picture on the hat and unfolding it, said with great disgust, "'I wish these papers did not come in the house. They are not for children to see, nor young people to read. It is not well, and I have no patience with those who make this harm.' Joe glanced at the sheet and saw a pleasing illustration composed of a lunatic, a corpse, a villain, and a viper. She did not like it, but the impulse that made her turn it over was not one of displeasure, but fear, because for a moment she fancied the paper was the volcano.' It was not, however, and her panic subsided as she remembered that even if it had been, and one of her own tales was in it, there would have been no name to betray her. She had betrayed herself, however, by a look and a blush, for though an absent man, the professor saw a good deal more than people fancied. He knew that Joe wrote, and had met her down among the newspaper offices more than once, but she never spoke of it, he asked no questions in spite of a strong desire to see her work. Now it occurred to him that she was doing what she was ashamed to own, and it troubled him. He did not say to himself, "'It is none of my business, I've no right to say anything,' as many people would have done. He only remembered that she was young and poor, a girl far away from mother's love and father's care, and he was moved to help her with an impulse as quick and natural as that which would prompt him to put out his hand to save a baby from a puddle. All this flashed through his mind in a minute, but not a trace of it appeared in his face and by the time the paper was turned and Joe's needle threaded, he was ready to say quite naturally, but very gravely, "'Yes, you are right to put it from you. I do not think that good young girls should see such things. They are made pleasant to some, but I would more rather give my boys gunpowder to play with than this bad trash.' "'All may not be bad, only silly, you know. And if there is a demand for it, I don't see any harm in supplying it.' Many very respectable people make an honest living out of what are called sensation stories," said Joe, scratching gathers so energetically that a row of little slits followed her pin. "'There's a demand for whisky, but I think you and I do not care to sell it. If the respectable people knew what harm they did, they would not feel that the living was honest. They have no right to put poison in the sugar-plum and let the small ones eat it. No. They should sink a little, and sweep mud in the street before they do this thing." Mr. Bear spoke warmly, and walked to the fire, crumpling the paper in his hands. Joe sat still, looking as if the fire had come to her, for her cheeks burned long after the cocked hat had turned to smoke and gone harmlessly up the chimney. "'I should like much to send all the rest after him,' muttered the professor, coming back with a relieved air. Joe thought what a blaze her pile of papers upstairs would make, and her hard-earned money lay rather heavily on her conscience at that minute. Then she thought consolingly to herself, "'Mine are not like that. They are only silly, never bad. 
so I won't be worried. And taking up her book, she said with a studious face, Shall we go on, sir? I'll be very good and proper now. I shall hope so, was all he said, but he meant more than she imagined, and the grave, kind look he gave her made her feel as if the words weekly volcano were printed in large type on her forehead. As soon as she went to her room, she got out her papers and carefully re-read every one of her stories. Being a little short-sighted, Mr. Bear sometimes used eyeglasses, and Joe had tried them once, smiling to see how they magnified the fine print of her book. Now she seemed to have on the professor's mental or moral spectacles also, for the faults of these poor stories glared at her dreadfully and filled her with dismay. They are trash, and will soon be worse trash if I go on, for each is more sensational than the last. I've gone blindly on, hurting myself and other people for the sake of money. I know it's so, for I can't read this stuff in sober earnest without being horribly ashamed of it. And what should I do if they were seen at home or Mr. Bear got hold of them?" Joe turned hot at the bare idea, and stuffed the whole bundle into her stove, nearly setting the chimney afire with the blaze. Yes, that's the best place for such inflammable nonsense. I'd better burn the house down, I suppose, than let other people blow themselves up with my gunpowder," she thought, as she watched the demon of the Yura whisk away, a little black cinder with fiery eyes. But when nothing remained of all her three months' work except a heap of ashes and the money in her lap, Joe looked sober, as she sat on the floor, wondering what she ought to do about her wages. "'I think I haven't done much harm yet, and may keep this to pay for my time,' she said, after a long meditation, adding impatiently, "'I almost wish I hadn't any conscience. It's so inconvenient. If I didn't care about doing right and didn't feel uncomfortable when doing wrong, I should get on capitally.' I can't help wishing sometimes that mother and father hadn't been so particular about such things. Ah, Joe, instead of wishing that, thank God that father and mother were particular, and pity from your heart those who have no such guardians to hedge them round with principles, which may seem like prison walls to impatient youth, but which will prove sure foundations to build character upon in womanhood. Joe wrote no more sensational stories deciding that the money did not pay for her share of the sensation, but going to the other extreme, as is the way with people of her stamp, she took a course of Mrs. Sherwood, Miss Edgeworth, and Hannah Moore, and then produced a tale which might have been more properly called an essay or a sermon, so intensely moral was it. She had her doubts about it from the beginning, for her lively fancy and girlish romance felt as ill at ease in the new style as she would have done masquerading in the stiff and cumbrous costume of the last century. She sent this didactic gem to several markets, but it found no purchaser, and she was inclined to agree with Mr. Dashwood that morals didn't sell. Then she tried a child's story, which she could easily have disposed of as she had not been mercenary enough to demand filthy lucre for it. The only person who offered enough to make it worth her while to try juvenile literature was a worthy gentleman who felt it his mission to convert all the world to his particular belief. But much as she liked to write for children, Joe could not consent to depict all her naughty boys as being eaten by bears or tossed by mad bulls because they did not go to a particular Sabbath school, nor all the good infants who did go as rewarded by every kind of bliss from gilded gingerbread to escorts of angels when they departed this life with psalms or sermons on their lisping tongues. So nothing came of these trials, and Jo corked up her inkstand, and said in a fit of very wholesome humility, 
I don't know anything. I'll wait until I do before I try again. And meantime, sweep mud in the street if I can't do better. That's honest, at least." Which decision proved that her second tumble down the beanstalk had done her some good. While these internal revolutions were going on, her external life had been as busy and uneventful as usual, and if she sometimes looked serious or a little sad, no one observed it but Professor Bear. He did it so quietly that Joe never knew he was watching to see if she would accept and profit by his reproof, but she stood the test, and he was satisfied, for though no words passed between them, he knew that she had given up writing. Not only did he guess it by the fact that the second finger of her right hand was no longer inky, but she spent her evenings downstairs now, was met no more among newspaper offices, and studied with a dogged patience, which assured him that she was bent on occupying her mind with something useful, if not pleasant. He helped her in many ways, proving himself a true friend, and Joe was happy, for while her pen lay idle she was learning other lessons besides German, and laying a foundation for the sensation story of her own life. It was a pleasant winter and a long one, for she did not leave Mrs. Kirk till June. Every one seemed sorry when the time came. The children were inconsolable, and Mr. Bear's hair stuck straight up all over his head, for he always rumpled it wildly when disturbed in mind. "'Going home? Ah, you are happy that you have a home to go in,' he said, when she told him, and sat silently pulling his beard in the corner, while she held a little levy on that last evening. She was going early, so she bade them all good-bye overnight, and when his turn came she said warmly, "'Now, sir, you won't forget to come and see us if you ever travel our way, will you? I'll never forgive you if you do, for I want them all to know my friend.' "'Do you? Shall I come?' he asked, looking down at her with an eager expression which she did not see. "'Yes, come next month. Laurie graduates, then and you'd enjoy commencement as something new." "'That is your best friend, of whom you speak?' he said, in an altered tone. "'Yes, my boy Teddy. I'm very proud of him, and should like you to see him.' Joe looked up then, quite unconscious of anything but her own pleasure in the prospect of showing them to one another. Something in Mr. Bear's face suddenly recalled the fact that she might find Laurie more than a best friend, and simply because she particularly wished not to look as if anything was the matter, she involuntarily began to blush, and the more she tried not to, the redder she grew. If it had not been for Tina on her knee, she didn't know what would have become of her. Fortunately the child was moving to hug her, so she managed to hide her face an instant, hoping the professor did not see it. But he did, and his own changed again from that momentary anxiety to its usual expression, as he said cordially, "'I fear I shall not make the time for that, but I wish the friend much success.' and you all happiness. God bless you." And with that he shook hands warmly, shouldered Tina, and went away. But after the boys were abed, he sat long before his fire with the tired look on his face, and the heimweh, or homesickness, lying heavily at his heart. Once when he remembered Joe as she sat with the little child in her lap and that new softness in her face, he leaned his head on his hands a minute, and then roamed about the room as if in search of something that he could not find. "'It is not for me. I must not hope it now,' he said to himself, with a sigh that was almost a groan. Then, as if reproaching himself for the longing that he could not repress, he went and kissed the two tousled heads upon the pillow, took down his seldom-used meerschaum, and opened his plato. He did his best, and did it manfully, 
but I don't think he found that a pair of rampant boys, a pipe, or even the divine Plato were very satisfactory substitutes for wife and child at home. Early as it was, he was at the station next morning to see Joe off, and thanks to him she began her solitary journey with the pleasant memory of a familiar face smiling its farewell, a bunch of violets to keep her company, and best of all, the happy thought, Well, the winter's gone, and I've written no books, earned no fortune, but I've made a friend worth having, and I'll try to keep him all my life. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 of Little Women. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 35 Heartache. Whatever his motive might have been, Laurie studied to some purpose that year, for he graduated with honor, and gave the Latin oration with the grace of a Phillips and the eloquence of a Demosthenes, so his friends said. They were all there his grandfather, oh, so proud, Mr. and Mrs. March, John and Meg, Joe and Beth, and all exulted over him with the sincere admiration which boys make light of at the time, but fail to win from the world by any after-triumphs. "'I've got to stay for this confounded supper, but I shall be home early to-morrow. You'll come and meet me as usual, girls,' Laurie said, as he put the sisters into the carriage after the joys of the day were over. He said, "'Girls,' but he meant Joe, for she was the only one who kept up the old custom. She had not the heart to refuse her splendid successful boy anything, and answered warmly, "'I'll come, Teddy, rain or shine, and march before you, playing Hail the Conquering Hero Comes on a Jew's harp.' Laurie thanked her with a look that made her think in a sudden panic, "'Oh, dearie me, I know he'll say something, and then what will I do?' Evening meditation and morning work somewhat allayed her fears, and having decided that she wouldn't be vain enough to think people were going to propose when she had given them every reason to know what her answer would be, she set forth at the appointed time, hoping Teddy wouldn't do anything to make her hurt his poor feelings. A call at Meg's, and a refreshing sniff and sip at the Daisy and Demijohn, still further fortified her for the tete-a-tete but when she saw a stalwart figure looming in the distance, she had a strong desire to turn about and run away. "'Where's the Jew's harp, Joe?' cried Laurie, as soon as he was within speaking distance. "'I forgot it.' And Joe took heart again, for that salutation could not be called lover-like. She always used to take his arm on these occasions. Now she did not, and he made no complaint, which was a bad sign but talked on rapidly about all sorts of faraway subjects, till they turned from the road into the little path that led homeward through the grove. Then he walked more slowly, suddenly lost his fine flow of language, and now and then a dreadful pause occurred. To rescue the conversation from one of the wells of silence into which it kept falling, Joe said hastily, "'Now you must have a good long holiday.' "'I intend to.' Something in his resolute tone made Joe look up quickly, to find him looking down at her with an expression that assured her the dreaded moment had come, and made her put out her hand with an imploring, "'No, Teddy, please don't.' "'I will, and you must hear me. It's no use, Joe, we've got to have it out, and the sooner the better for both of us,' he answered, 
getting flushed and excited all at once. "'Say what you like, then. I'll listen,' said Joe, with a desperate sort of patience. Laurie was a young lover, but he was in earnest and meant to have it out if he died in the attempt, so he plunged into the subject with characteristic impetuosity, saying in a voice that would get choky now and then in spite of manful efforts to keep it steady, "'I've loved you ever since I've known you, Joe. Couldn't help it. You've been so good to me. I've tried to show it, but you wouldn't let me. Now I'm going to make you hear and give me an answer, for I can't go on so any longer.' "'I wanted to save you this. I thought you'd understand,' began Joe, finding it a great deal harder than she expected. "'I know you did, but the girls are so queer you never know what they mean. They say no when they mean yes and drive a man out of his wits just for the fun of it,' returned Laurie, entrenching himself behind an undeniable fact. "'I don't. I never wanted to make you care for me so, and I went away to keep you from it if I could.' "'I thought so.' It was like you, but it was no use. I only loved you all the more. And I worked hard to please you. And I gave up billiards and everything you didn't like, and waited and never complained. For I hoped you'd love me, though I'm not half good enough. Here there was a choke that couldn't be controlled. So he decapitated buttercups while he cleared his confounded throat. You, you are, you're a great deal too good for me, and I'm so grateful to you and so proud and fond of you. I don't know why I can't love you as you want me to. I've tried, but I can't change the feeling, and it would be a lie to say I do when I don't. Really, truly, Joe? He stopped short, and caught both her hands as he put his question with a look that she did not soon forget. Really, truly, dear. They were in the grove now, close by the stile, and when the last words fell reluctantly from Joe's lips, Laurie dropped her hands and turned as if to go on, but for once in his life the fence was too much for him. So he just laid his head down on the mossy post, and stood so still that Joe was frightened. "'Oh, Teddy, I'm sorry, I'm so desperately sorry, I could kill myself if it would do any good. I wish you wouldn't take it so hard. I can't help it.' You know it's impossible for people to make themselves love other people if they don't," cried Joe inelegantly but remorsefully, as she softly patted his shoulder, remembering the time when he had comforted her so long ago. "'They do sometimes,' said a muffled voice from the post. "'I don't believe it's the right sort of love, and I'd rather not try it,' was the decided answer. There was a long pause, while a blackbird sung blithely on the willow by the river, and the tall grass rustled in the wind. Presently Joe said very soberly, as she sat down on the step of the stile, "'Laurie, I want to tell you something.' He started as if he had been shot, threw up his head, and cried out in a fierce tone, "'Don't tell me that, Joe! I can't bear it now!' "'Tell what?' she asked, wondering at his violence. "'That you love that old man!' "'What old man?' demanded Joe thinking he must mean his grandfather. "'That devilish professor you are always writing about! If you say you love him, I know I shall do something desperate!' And he looked as if he would keep his word, as he clenched his hands with a wrathful spark in his eyes. Joe wanted to laugh, but restrained herself and said warmly, for she too was getting excited with all this, "'Don't swear, Teddy. He isn't old, nor anything bad, but good and kind. 
and the best friend I've got next to you. Pray don't fly into a passion. I want to be kind, but I know I shall get angry if you abuse my professor. I haven't the least idea of loving him or anybody else. But you will after a while, and then what will become of me? You'll love someone else too, like a sensible boy, and forget all this trouble. I can't love anyone else, and I'll never forget you, Joe. Never! Never! With a stamp to emphasize his passionate words. What shall I do with him? sighed Joe, finding that emotions were more unmanageable than she had expected. You haven't heard what I wanted to tell you. Sit down and listen, for indeed I want to do right and make you happy," she said, hoping to soothe him with a little reason, which proved that she knew nothing about love. Seeing a ray of hope in that last speech, Laurie threw himself down on the grass at her feet, leaned his arm on the lower step of the stile, and looked up at her with an expectant face. Now that arrangement was not conducive to calm speech or clear thought on Joe's part, for how could she say hard things to her boy when he watched her with eyes full of love and longing, and lashes still wet with the bitter drop or two her hardness of heart had wrung from him? She gently turned his head away, saying, as she stroked the wavy hair which had been allowed to grow for her sake, how touching that was, to be sure. I agree with mother that you and I are not suited to each other, because our quick tempers and strong wills would probably make us very miserable if we were so foolish as to— Joe paused a little over the last word, but Laurie uttered it with a rapturous expression. Mary! No, we shouldn't. If you loved me, Joe, I should be a perfect saint, for you can make me anything you like. No, I can't. I've tried and failed, and I won't risk our happiness by such a serious experiment. We don't agree, and we never shall, so we'll be good friends all our lives, but we won't go and do anything rash. Yes, we will if we get the chance," muttered Laurie rebelliously. "'Now do be reasonable, and take a sensible view of the case,' implored Joe, almost at her wit's end. "'I won't be reasonable. I don't want to take what you call a sensible view. It won't help me, and it only makes it harder. I don't believe you've got any heart.' "'I wish I hadn't.' There was a little quiver in Joe's voice, and thinking it a good omen, Laurie turned round bringing all his persuasive powers to bear as he said, in the wheedlesome tone that had never been so dangerously wheedlesome before. Don't disappoint us, dear. Everyone expects it. Grandpa has set his heart upon it. Your people like it, and I can't get on without you. Say you will, and let's be happy. Do. Do. Not until months afterward did Joe understand how she had the strength of mind to hold fast to the resolution she had made when she decided that she did not love her boy and never could. It was very hard to do, but she did it, knowing that delay was both useless and cruel. "'I can't say yes truly, so I won't say it at all. You'll see that I'm right by and by, and thank me for it,' she began solemnly. "'I'll be hanged if I do!' and Laurie bounced up off the grass, burning with indignation at the very idea. "'Yes, you will,' persisted Joe. "'You'll get over this after a while, and find some lovely, accomplished girl who will adore you, and make a fine mistress for your fine house. I shouldn't. I'm homely and awkward and odd and old, and you'd be ashamed of me, and we should quarrel. We can't help it even now, you see. And I shouldn't like elegant society, and you would 
and you'd hate my scribbling, and I couldn't get on without it. And we should be unhappy, and wish we hadn't done it, and everything would be horrid." "'Anything more?' asked Laurie, finding it hard to listen patiently to this prophetic burst. "'Nothing more, except that I don't believe I shall ever marry. I'm happy as I am, and I love my liberty too well to be in a hurry to give it up for any mortal man." "'I know better,' broke in Laurie. You think so now, but there'll come a time when you will care for somebody and you'll love him tremendously and live and die for him. I know you will. It's your way. And I shall have to stand by and see it." And the despairing lover cast his hat upon the ground with a gesture that would have seemed comical if his face had not been so tragic. Yes, I will live and die for him, if he ever comes and makes me love him in spite of myself. And you must do the best you can," cried Joe losing patience with poor Teddy. "'I've done my best, but you won't be reasonable, and it's selfish of you to keep teasing for what I can't give. I shall always be fond of you, very fond indeed, as a friend, but I'll never marry you, and the sooner you believe it the better for both of us. So now!' That speech was like gunpowder. Laurie looked at her a minute as if he did not quite know what to do with himself, then turned sharply away, saying in a desperate sort of tone, You'll be sorry some day, Joe." "'Oh, where are you going?' she cried, for his face frightened her. "'To the devil!' was the consoling answer. For a minute Joe's heart stood still, as he swung himself down the bank toward the river. But it takes much folly, sin, or misery to send a young man to a violent death, and Laurie was not one of the weak sort who were conquered by a single failure. He had no thought of a melodramatic plunge but some blind instinct led him to fling hat and coat into his boat, and row away with all his might, making better time up the river than he had done in any race. Joe drew a long breath, and unclasped her hands as she watched the poor fellow, trying to outstrip the trouble which he carried in his heart. "'That will do him good. And he'll come home in such a tender, penitent state of mind that I shan't dare to see him,' she said, adding, as she went slowly home, feeling as if she had murdered some innocent thing and buried it under the leaves. Now I must go and prepare Mr. Lawrence to be very kind to my poor boy. I wish he'd love Beth. Perhaps he may in time. But I begin to think I was mistaken about her. Oh, dear! How can girls like to have lovers and refuse them? I think it's dreadful." Being sure that no one could do it so well as herself, she went straight to Mr. Lawrence told the hard story bravely through, and then broke down, crying so dismally over her own insensibility that the kind old gentleman, though sorely disappointed, did not utter a reproach. He found it difficult to understand how any girl could help loving Laurie, and hoped she would change her mind, but he knew even better than Joe that love cannot be forced. So he shook his head sadly and resolved to carry his boy out of harm's way for young impetuosity's parting words to Joe disturbed him more than he would confess. When Laurie came home, dead tired but quite composed, his grandfather met him as if he knew nothing, and kept up the delusion very successfully for an hour or two. But when they sat together in the twilight, the time they used to enjoy so much, it was hard work for the old man to ramble on as usual, and harder still for the young one to listen to praises of the last year's success which to him now seemed like love's labor lost. He bore it as long as he could, then went to his piano and began to play. The windows were open, and Joe, walking in the garden with Beth, for once understood music better than her sister. 
for he played the sonata pathetique, and played it as he never did before. That's very fine, I dare say, but it's sad enough to make one cry. Give us something gayer, lad, said Mr. Lawrence, whose kind old heart was full of sympathy, which he longed to show but knew not how. Laurie dashed into a livelier strain, played stormily for several minutes, and would have got through bravely, if in a momentary lull Mrs. March's voice had not been heard calling. "'Joe, dear, come in. I want you.' Just what Laurie longed to say, with a different meaning. As he listened he lost his place, the music ended with a broken chord, and the musician sat silent in the dark. "'I can't stand this,' muttered the old gentleman. Up he got, groped his way to the piano, laid a kind hand on either of the broad shoulders, and said as gently as a woman, "'I know, my boy, I know.' No answer for an instant. Then Laurie asked abruptly, "'Who told you?' "'Joe herself.' "'Then there's an end of it.' And he shook off his grandfather's hands with an impatient motion, for though grateful for the sympathy, his man's pride could not bear a man's pity. "'Not quite. I want to say one thing, and then there shall be an end to it,' returned Mr. Lawrence with unusual mildness. "'You won't care to stay at home now, perhaps?' "'I don't intend to run away from a girl. Joe can't prevent my seeing her, and I shall stay and do it as long as I like,' interrupted Laurie in a defiant tone. "'Not if you are the gentleman, I think you. I'm disappointed, but the girl can't help it, and the only thing left for you to do is to go away for a time. Where will you go?' "'Anywhere. I don't care what becomes of me.' And Laurie got up with a reckless laugh that grated on his grandfather's ear. "'Take it like a man, and don't do anything rash, for God's sake. Why not go abroad, as you planned, and forget it?' "'I can't.' "'But you've been wild to go, and I promised you should, when you got through college.' "'Ah, but I didn't mean to go alone.' And Laurie walked fast through the room with an expression which it was well his grandfather did not see. "'I don't ask you to go alone.' There's someone ready and glad to go with you, anywhere in the world. Who, sir? Stopping to listen. Myself. Laurie came back as quickly as he went, and put out his hand, saying huskily, I'm a selfish brute, but, you know, grandfather— Lord help me, yes, I do know, for I've been through it all before, once in my own young days, and then with your father. Now, my dear boy— just sit quietly down and hear my plan. It's all settled, and can be carried out at once," said Mr. Lawrence, keeping hold of the young man, as if fearful that he would break away as his father had done before him. "'Well, sir, what is it?' And Laurie sat down without a sign of interest in face or voice. "'There is business in London that needs looking after. I meant you should attend to it, but I can do it better myself, and things here will get on very well with Brooke to manage them.' my partners do almost everything i'm merely holding on till you take my place and can be off at any time but you hate travelling sir i can't ask it of you at your age began laurie who was grateful for the sacrifice but much preferred to go alone if he went at all the old gentleman knew that perfectly well and particularly desired to prevent it for the mood in which he found his grandson assured him that it would not be wise to leave him to his own devices so, stifling a natural regret at the thought of the home comforts he would leave behind him, he said stoutly, "'Bless your soul! I'm not superannuated yet. I quite enjoy the idea. 
it will do me good and my old bones won't suffer for travelling nowadays is almost as easy as sitting in a chair a restless movement from lorry suggested that his chair was not easy or that he did not like the plan and made the old man add hastily i don't mean to be a marplot or a burden i go because i think you'd feel happier than if i was left behind i don't intend to get about with you but leave you free to go where you like while i amuse myself in my own way i friends in london and paris and should like to visit them meantime you can go to italy germany switzerland where you will and enjoy pictures music scenery and adventures to your heart's content now lorry felt just then that his heart was entirely broken and the world a howling wilderness but at the sound of certain words which the old gentleman artfully introduced into his closing sentence the broken heart gave an unexpected leap and a green oasis or two suddenly appeared in the howling wilderness he sighed and then said in a spiritless tone just as you like sir it doesn't matter where i go or what i do it does to me remember that my lad i give you entire liberty but i trust you to make an honest use of it promise me that lorry anything you like sir good thought the old gentleman you don't care now but there'll come a time when that promise will keep you out of mischief or i'm much mistaken being an energetic individual mr lawrence struck while the iron was hot and before the blighted being recovered spirit enough to rebel they were off during the time necessary for preparation lorry bore himself as young gentlemen usually do in such cases he was moody irritable and pensive by turns lost his appetite neglected his dress and devoted much time to playing tempestuously on his piano avoided joe but consoled himself by staring at her from his window with a tragic face that haunted her dreams by night and oppressed her with a heavy sense of guilt by day unlike some sufferers he never spoke of his unrequited passion and would allow no one not even mrs march to attempt consolation or offer sympathy on some accounts this was a relief to his friends but the weeks before his departure were very uncomfortable and every one rejoiced that the poor dear fellow was going away to forget his trouble and come home happy of course he smiled darkly at their delusion but passed it by with the sad superiority of one who knew that his fidelity like his love was unalterable when the parting came he affected high spirits to conceal certain inconvenient emotions which seemed inclined to assert themselves this gaiety did not impose upon anybody but they tried to look as if it did for his sake and he got on very well till mrs march kissed him with a whisper full of motherly solicitude then feeling that he was going very fast he hastily embraced them all round not forgetting the afflicted hannah and ran downstairs as if for his life joe followed a minute after to wave her hand to him if he looked round he did look round came back put his arms about her as she stood on the step above him and looked up at her with a face that made his short appeal eloquent and pathetic oh joe can't you teddy dear i wish i could that was all except a little pause then lorry straightened himself up said it's all right never mind and went away without another word ah but it wasn't all right and joe did mind for while the curly head lay on her arm a minute after her hard answer she felt as if she had stabbed her dearest friend, and when he left her without a look behind him, she knew that the boy Lorry never would come again. End of chapter 35
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.